0: Welcome to Wednesday night service. I'm glad that you're able to join us and praise the Lord. Uh, it is so powerful um, in thinking about how from God's perspective, when he looks down on us, he sees us all everywhere that we are. His body united in worship and praise to him. So awesome. Uh, we're going to take a moment, and I want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 9.10. It says, Now, May he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. This is God's desire to bless you. But I find it interesting. He says he supplies seed to the eater. No, it says he supplies seed to the sower. He will bring Seed, give seed, supply seed to those of us who are sowing. And then he says, may God multiply the seed you have sown. We, in this time, we don't want to forget that now is a time to plant Seed, And that's what we're going to take a moment to do. We're going to sow into the kingdom of God. And these finances will assist in reaching people in this community as well as around the world. And God promises to take and multiply this seed. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you for the opportunity to be here gathered together uh, as a group of believers in our homes uh, virtually. Lord, we just pray your blessing on these uh, funds that will be coming in. We pray your blessing on the, the, each person who gives. We thank you that your word promises that you will multiply the seed that we have sown. In Jesus' name, I ask that you would bless uh, what we say today, that they would be your words, not ours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as you can see here today, my wife Emily is with me. Um, we've been quarantined together and uh, as, as are most of you, and uh, we were just sharing and talking about what God put on our hearts, and, and Emily shared something uh, with me, and it just clicked, and I said, if, even if you're not sharing that with me, that is what I feel like God has to say uh, to the body this week, and so we've been working together on this, and uh, this isn't the first time that she's shared with me. Um, it always goes really well. She does so well, it makes me look bad, and uh, that's a good thing. I'm proud of her. Um, so we're going to start today uh, sharing about uh, peace versus passivity.
1: Thank you, Thank you so much for allowing me to, to speak tonight and to bring a word with my husband, Pastor Josh. I hope I can add some unique perspective and insight. I'd like to open tonight by taking a deep dive into Romans 16, 16. So if you could take a moment and turn there. It says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Oh wait, oh wait, that that might not be the right verse to use during a global pandemic, a little Christian humor for you to start things off. But in all seriousness, in my professional role, I have the privilege of working with Christians all over the globe. It's really kind of an amazing thing to see. And one of the very humbling things to experience is how completely and utterly we are all in this together. I think oftentimes for particularly Americans, it's easy for us to disconnect from tragedies and situations because so often they're happening across the globe. You know, it might be an earthquake in Haiti, or it could be a volcano in Guatemala or persecution, but it's happening far away and it's easy for Americans to disconnect from that. But in this instance, we are all truly, truly impacted. You know, every year Resurrection Life Church, we have a time of corporate prayer, and there's always amazing, powerful things that happen during that time. And while this global pandemic is awful, and I'm, I'm not pretending to celebrate tragedy, one thing I am excited about is this opportunity. It's this opportunity for us to pull together as a global Church of Christ, to pray together, to war together, and if we think corporate prayer for our church body is powerful, imagine what would happen when the entire global body of Christ joins together in prayer. Now that's powerful. One of my all-time favorite verses is Romans eight twenty-eight. You probably have heard it. It says, for we know that in all things, in all things, God works for good everything for the good of those who love him, those who have been called according to his purpose. Now, I have stood firmly on this verse during many difficult times. Say, wow, God, this situation looks bad, but I know, I know that you work all things together for the good of those who love you. And I love you, and I've been called according to your purpose, so I know you can work this for my good. But I think sometimes it's easy for Christians when they hear a verse like that, to fall into this trap. And the trap is thinking that once you become a Christian, everything is hunky-dory. That somehow we come out of the baptismal tank and suddenly life is peachy keen and we never encounter problems and we just go around and we might sing kumbaya and eat our Turkish delight or s'mores or whatever your peace food might happen to be. But unfortunately, that's just not the case. And I've got to be honest with you, God doesn't even hide that from us in his word. If you turn to John sixteen 33, you'll see it clearly here in print. It says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This reminds me of a similar thing that happens in marriage. So many of us walk down the aisle, we have our fairy tale experience, the beautiful dress, the handsome, tall, dark, and handsome man at the end, and we think we're going to say, I do, and everything is going to be awesome. We're going to live in this fairy tale, we're going to have a bed of roses, it's going to be this beautiful time. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 7, 28 it says clearly but if you marry you have not sinned and if a virgin marries she has not sinned but those who marry will face many troubles in this life how many troubles many troubles really really (laughs) so why why are we so caught off guard when troubles come up in this world if we know that in this world we will have trouble Just like in marriage, there will be trouble. It's not always perfect. But I think one of the traps and one of the things that the devil sometimes implants in our thought process is we think that the presence of trouble means that somehow God has failed. God, how could you let this happen? How could you let me lose my job? How could you, how could you let my, my children, this happen in my family? How could, you, how could you let this thing happen across our globe? We think that trouble means that God failed, but that's simply not true. You see, the truth is that sometimes we create our own storms through our own actions, our own disobedience. Other times, we're just playing caught up in the storms of this world, of this life. We live in a fallen world. And yet other times, we encounter storms and resistance as we're getting closer to our destiny. But we have been forewarned that there will be trouble. There will be storms. But I think equally importantly to point out is that God also promises to sustain us. Looking at Isaiah 41.10, it says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Again, in Exodus 14.13, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today.
0: Another verse that I think applies in this situation, perhaps surprisingly, is Hebrews 4.11. It says, Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So he says, I want you to make an effort to rest. And I think of it this way, it's like, okay, there in your couch. One, two, three, rest. You know, it's it's not it resting doesn't seem like something that we think of as being an effort, but God designed us to function best from a place of fearlessness and rest. We just read the scriptures where it's in Isaiah forty one ten where it said, do not fear. Um, notice when angels appeared over and over, they would say, do not fear. God gave the Israelites the Sabbath and said, every week, I want you to stop and rest. I, I am not a golfer, but I have tried to golf. And I remember being told by the golfer who was instructing me that you need to, don't, it's not about how hard you swat at the ball. It's about getting the form right and doing it right. And and actually, he kept saying, relax. And I thought, how can I get it farther if I'm more relaxed? But when the form is done right, it's not about muscling through. It's about having things in the right balance. And we are designed to function from a place of rest, and fearlessness. There is a power that comes to Christians that we can enter into when we peacefully rest. And what does that mean? That means having full confidence in the finished work of Christ. An effective Christian is peaceful and rested. Our warfare is then most effective. We, we think that, that peace the peace that God brings is like a kumbaya peace, like a hippie peace, like, like we're sitting around the campfire with, with flowers in our hair and a guitar and sandals on our feet, and that is peace. But peace is not the absence of conflict, not biblical peace. It is the presence of the Prince of Peace. In fact, Jesus came to establish his kingdom. He is the Prince of Peace, but he enlists us in His army. So peace isn't the absence of something. Peace isn't inactivity. We are familiarizing ourselves with inactivity right now. And inactivity is boredom. That's not peace. Peace is stability regardless of circumstances. I think it's interesting. I picture all of us have probably seen these famous pictures of a lighthouse getting pummeled by a huge wave. And and the, the lighthouse doesn't move. It's interesting how those pictures of the lighthouse being hit by a wave are actually a peaceful image. Why? Because we recognize that the circumstances are difficult. The circumstances are crazy. There is a storm. There are waves. And, and many of you have may, may have seen the picture I'm, I'm imagining in my mind right now, where there is a lighthouse and there is a door on this side of the lighthouse and the wave is coming from behind. And you can see a man standing in the door of the lighthouse and the wave is just crashing against the lighthouse behind him. And we see he is at peace, even though he's in the middle of a storm. That's what peace looks like. Proverbs 3.24 says, When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your peace, or excuse me, your sleep will be sweet.
1: But how many of you know that sleeping or even resting during storms does not necessarily mean we're full of peace and high faith? How many of you remember the story of Jonah? Jonah. If you remember, Jonah was a prophet of God, and God told him to go to Nineveh and prophesy against them. And if you remember, Jonah did not want to do that, so he started running away from God. Let's look at it in the word. Jonah 1, 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. The Lord sent a great wind and such a violent storm. Now take a moment and imagine this violent storm. We have those crashing waves, like the ones you might have pictured just now against the lighthouse. They're crashing, it is a violent storm, and we're on this little boat. It's a wooden boat, and men are up on board, freaking out. They're tossing cargo, they're holding on for dear life, they're just trying to survive this situation. Now let's continue on in the verse. It says that that violent storm arose and the ship threatened to break. You can hear that creaking wood. It is threatening to break. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. This isn't even a regular sleep. It is a deep sleep deep sleep in the middle of the storm. And verse six says the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe, maybe he'll take notice so we will not perish. You guys, Jonah was asleep in this boat in the middle of a violent God-created storm in complete disobedience to God in a storm that he quite literally created with his disobedience. What do you think that looked like? If you walked down those stairs and you saw a man sleeping, maybe he looked peaceful. Have you ever been through a storm in your life, a really difficult situation? And I'm not talking about some short-lived thing, I'm talking about one of those gut-wrenching situations where it's difficult to function. Like, you feel it in your soul. Something really difficult, like the loss of a job, or, or maybe the, the, a terminal illness of a child, or a, a divorce, or you know, some kind of really awful thing that's not going to, you're not gonna make it through it in a timely fashion. You know, I certainly have, and I think most people have been through difficult situations. In fact, not too long ago, I was going through a really difficult time, and God revealed to me a tendency that was playing out for me during those situations. You see, during week 1, I have no problem praying, declaring, standing on his word, loosing, binding, standing in faith. I am I am the warrior with my gloves on during week 1. Week 2, I'm still feeling pretty strong in my faith. I'm still going to battle. But around week three, something tends to happen. And my tendency has been to shift from that posture of battle and that posture of faith into more of passive indifference. And people in general have a tendency to do this when they're in times of intense situations. And whether it's intentional or unintentional, people stop caring. They become indifferent, they become passive. And in particular, this happens when they're in a situation they feel like they can't control. Psychologists might call this learned helplessness or dissociation or having an external locus of control. But whatever you call it, it is important to know that passive indifference is not the same thing as resting in the finished works of Jesus. It is not the same thing as being content in all situations. And I'm here to tell you that we are not called to be passive Christians. Looking at Genesis 1 we can see clearly that we, man, we were made to rule over all the earth. We were made to have dominion. You guys, that doesn't sound passive to me. Philippians 4, 11 to 13 says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. And what is that secret? Verse 13 tells us the secret is I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. But as we said, being content in any situation is not the same as being passive in any situation. Indifference and passivity are, is not the same as being content. And it is not the same as entering God's rest. But sometimes to the untrained eye, it can kind of look the same, can't it? Do you think someone might have looked at Jonah and said, wow, wow, he must have high faith. He must really be resting in peace. We could look at someone in complete disobedience in a violent storm that he created, and we might accidentally think that they were a peaceful person. Only we can decipher the status of our own hearts. And I want to encourage you not to be fooled. When you think back to that time that you were battling something difficult in your life, where was your heart? Was it in fear? Was it in faith? Did it move into this passive indifference? And don't be fooled. That indifference is not faith any more than disobedience. Jonah's disobedience is faith. You guys, we are presently in a storm. And we are round in third base. We are rounding into that third week of a very extreme situation. And I'd like you to take a moment and take status. Where is, where is your heart right now? Are you planted in faith? Are you battling fear? Or do you find yourself shifting towards indifference during that week three? None of these are abnormal responses to the situation. And it's easy for people to say, why emotionally engage if you can't control the outcome? But is that biblical? Do you think the devil cares why we're not engaging in in battle? Do you think he cares if we are not engaging because we're actively in disobedience? Or maybe we're just being passive. Either way, we're not engaging, and that's what he cares about.
0: Perhaps you saw this coming, but we're going to contrast Jonah and his sleeping in the boat with the story of Jesus in Mark chapter 4, verse 38. It says this, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up. He rebuked the wind and the waves. And said, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? So we talked about Jonah. Jonah was just indifferent. He was like, I just, I'm going to go. I know where God wanted me. I'm going to go the opposite direction. He, he was sleeping because he was checked out. But Jesus wasn't checked out. He wasn't asleep because of indifference. No, Jesus was asleep because he wasn't worried. He already knew what was going to happen. He understood that he had authority. And it was Jesus, after all, who told the disciples, okay, get in the boat, let's go, we're going to the other side. He knew where they would go. And he didn't, he, he knew he wasn't leading them into to certain death, and I think he was disappointed that they didn't realize that. I used to read this and think that Jesus was irritated that the disciples had needed help and wanted help. And I used to think that what Jesus really wanted them to do was to solve the problem without ever even waking him up. But As I've grown in my understanding of God's character, I realize I don't think that's the case. I don't believe that Jesus's irritated tone had anything to do with being woken up. In fact, he tells us to call out to him in times of trouble. I don't believe that the disciples did anything wrong by calling on him for help. It was how they did it. So let's look at what they said. We are to call out to God in times of trouble. But look at the way they called out to him. They said, don't you even care about us? Don't you care about us that we're going to die? Don't you care if we drown? So basically they're saying, we don't think you care. Oh, and also, we're going to die. Technically, they didn't even ask for help. They just woke him up to say, everything is horrible, you don't care, we're going to die. Anybody heard similar voices to that going on lately? You turn on the news and it's angry finger pointing. Just things are horrible. I, someone shared a video with me uh, yesterday. Like, not just on their page, but they literally sent it right to me. And I went and, and looked at it, and it was a medic from Spain who was just, just angry, complaining, finger pointing, just trying to get everybody angry at whoever had failed in order to cause this, and angry at their government for not doing enough, and angry at, the, and then just telling everybody, you know, just to go and share. They're finger pointing in anger. And it it reminds me of this. They didn't come and say, Jesus, we need you now. How do we come through this? They just said, God, why is this happening? Don't you care? That they doubted his heart was for them, and they were declaring. An ungodly end to their circumstance. They were literally saying, "We were, were going to drown." So Jesus, He loved. Now this reminds me of a time. How many of you have ever been on a pontoon boat? If you don't know what a pontoon boat is, um, it is a platform on top of two or sometimes, in this case, it was three sealed like cylinders. So. There's no way for water to fill a pontoon boat. A pontoon boat just floats, okay? And you, could, you can splash water on the top of it and it'll just roll off that plat- platform. And there's chairs and, and usually a little small wall and there's usually a space underneath it. Well, one time we were up uh, where my wife is from on one of the biggest inland lakes in Michigan, it's Burt Lake, and we're, we're crossing that in a big a storm, a large wind had come up and so there are large waves coming across this lake and we're out there with the family and the kids and we're on this pontoon boat and it's going up and down on the waves and it goes up and comes down and the whole front of the boat just splashes through and like a foot of water just comes washing across the top of the boat. And as adults, like, we were irritated that we just got wet. but
1: I think I took the brunt of it.
0: (laughs) She was sitting near the front and just a big splash wave comes right over. But uh, one of our kids in particular was completely afraid, convinced that this boat was going to sink. Water had just come over the top. And he was so upset and fearful. And we just kept saying, don't worry. the The boat isn't going to sink. And I think of that difference. We were at peace in the same circumstance that he was in complete panic because we had a different perspective. We had an elevated perspective. We understood this is is what's going to happen. God is in control. God desires us to have his elevated perspective. From a kingdom perspective, a bump in the road or a wave on the, the lake doesn't seem like a big deal. That's why God encourages us to seek first the kingdom.
1: That's right. I'd like to look at Romans 5, 3 to 5. It says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now people don't like to talk about the fact that there is actually a purpose in difficulty. There is a purpose in perseverance. First Corinthians ten thirteen says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or endure beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So not only is there a purpose when we have to persevere, there is a purpose when we are in difficult situations. God also promises that he's not gonna push us beyond what we're capable of handling. Have you ever noticed that God doesn't jump in and bail you out of a difficult situation at the first sign of trouble? Have you ever noticed this, at least it's true in my life. A lot of times when I'm going through difficulty, God waits until the the right time to come in. He gives me time to figure it out, to relate to him, to do some warfare, to to impact and and affect my own situation. And that's actually helping me to grow. Think about it, have you ever been given more than you can bear? Now this might seem like kind of a trivial example, but not too long ago, I came kind of close to being pushed over that edge of what I could bear. And this isn't the only time in my life that I've been pushed towards that edge, but this was recent, so I'd like to share it with you. So over the holiday season, we were trying to sell our house. So as you can imagine, the holiday season is not the right time to try and sell a house. So while we had a lot of activity, it just wasn't moving. We weren't getting offers. So week after week after week, I'm trying to maintain a house. We have six children. We have two dogs and a cat. And we have a lot of activity. And let me tell you, trying to keep a house show ready at the drop of a hat with all of those children was really trying for me. I had a full-time job. We're doing a lot with ministry. The time to do that was pretty slim, and it was trying. So week after week, time after time, we would clean and get it ready over and over and over. And
0: multiple times a Multiple
1: week. times a week, yeah. It, it was quite- The realtor
0: calls up. Someone wants to see the house. Oh, this could be it. We gotta get the whole house clean.
1: <laughs> so months into this, I'm getting really, really weary of this situation. And I was out, I like to pray when I walk, and I was out walking and praying, and I said, God, I know, I know you say that you're not going to give me more than I can bear, but God, it's feeling like we're getting pretty close to that point. Uh, Two hours later, our house sold. It was a pretty encouraging thing to me, that God really does listen to us, and he really will not give us more than we can bear. James 1, 2 through 3 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. You guys, I love to work out. I'm one of those, I'm one of those weirdos who actually enjoys working out and training. And it takes, when you're lifting weights, it takes extra weight, extra tension to build muscle, doesn't it? You're not going to build muscle doing the light lifting. And likewise, it takes difficult situations to strengthen our character. We can use difficulties to improve and to equip ourselves. And I think we are poised at a perfect time to capture the difficulties, to use it to accelerate ourselves and equip ourselves as Christians.
0: Yeah. Whenever I hear that scripture, uh, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, that she just read, that talks about uh, getting more, uh, that God promises not to allow us more than we can bear, I always think of what C.S. Lewis wrote um, many years ago. This was during the time of the World War. And he writes that God promises, God's promises to not allow us to face more than we can bear. What God means by this is that we will be capable to accept with patience the tribulation which has actually been dealt out to us. But instead, many of us imagine dozens of terrible possibilities and then try to conjure up enough fortitude and patience to handle all of the possibilities in advance. But true acceptance at the exact same moment to a dozen different hypothetical fates is almost impossible. So to rephrase, he basically says, God has promised to watch over us, to protect us, to ensure that we do not uh, face more than we can bear. But many of us, instead of handling simply what has come our way, we begin to imagine and meditate not on what actually happened, but what might happen next. And that steals our peace faster than than anything else because God has given you enough peace to handle the situation, but you're asking for peace to handle 12 different situations that haven't even happened yet, all of which are the worst-case scenario. And, and what does that look like? That looks like, oh, no, oh, no, there's this virus. What if I get it? What if I get it and then I give it to my parents? And then my parents, well, they're older and they're immunocompromised and then they're going to die. And then, and then if they die, you know, well, what if, I die? what if I die? And then my kids don't have any parents. And, and what, if, what 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 if? And then there we are trying to handle that. And we're like, God, where's your peace? And he's like, you know what? I'm giving you peace to handle the quarantine and the situation. I'm protecting you. You're not going to get it, and your parents aren't going to get it, and you're not going to die. And this is but you feel as though I have abandoned you. But that's not true. It's it's a mental toughness. Many endurance athletes have learned this and I, I've done half marathons, I've done adventure races that are 30 plus hours of continuous racing. And let me tell you something. Your body will tell you that you've done too much, that it's time to quit long before it's actually ready. And and one of the terms that, that athletes are familiar with is mental toughness. It's because in a marathon, it might be mile three, it might be mile nine, but your body is going to say, oh, in anticipation of all of this work, I think I want to quit. But if you keep going, it's actually harder to... To, to overcome that mental challenge than it is to simply put your foot in front of the other again. And God has promised us his peace. He says, if you will look at the situation from my perspective, I will handle this. You don't need to be afraid. You can be like the parents on that pontoon boat where we saw the wave come over and it's like, oh, I'm getting wet. This is not what I wanted. I did not. We didn't come out on this cruise hoping to get wet, but we're not in fear for our lives. God has a plan for your life. God has given you a plan. He wants to use you to spread peace to your neighbors. He wants We as Christians need to be that lighthouse in the storm. When people look at us and say, how come your Facebook posts aren't full of finger-pointing and angry shouts at at different government officials and name-calling and and whatever? How is it that you're, you're just at peace, even in the storm? That is what God has called us to do. We have more to share with you on this topic, and I think... If possible, we're going to do that next week, Wednesday. We'll share with you again. Right now, I'm going to wrap up, and I want to take a moment to say, if you don't know that you have eternal life, if you don't know that Jesus has forgiven your sins, if you don't know that you have a relationship with him, it is hard to have peace. It is hard to know that you can relax because he has it in control. If that's you, I want to encourage you. The Bible says you can know that you have salvation. It doesn't say wait till you die and then find out. It says no. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus died on the cross and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the sin that separates you from God. I want to encourage you. If you don't know, that your sins are forgiven. You can know before you end this broadcast. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray the prayer that was described there in Romans 10. And if you repeat after me sincerely, God says you will have confessed with your mouth and believed with your heart, and then you will be saved. With me now, let's say, Dear Heavenly Father, I believe that your Son Jesus Lived a perfect life, did not deserve to die, but he died on the cross for my sins. I realize and believe that he rose from the dead. Thank you for forgiving my sin. I choose to give you my life and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.